Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. We are broadcasting today from the Morton studio. Today on the show we're going to talk a little about aerial seeding cover crops. We're also going to get to your questions almost right away here in the Ag PhD mailbag. <laughs> we, uh, we've been getting a, a tremendous amount of questions, especially after yesterday's show, talking about weed control in pastures and non-crop areas. We want to get to that pretty quickly as well. Uh, first, let me just say with aerial seeding of cover crops, there have been a lot of questions about that. If you've got any questions for us, please email us radio at agphd.com or you can find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, so uh, Darren, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag right away. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, I've got a couple of questions here that are basically both the same, so I'll read them both. First one is from Charlie. Is there any type of herbicide that will control winter grass, like spear grass that is in my coastal Bermuda grass fields used for hay? And Sarah says, what do you do if green foxtail is in your grass hay field without wiping out your whole field? Uh, so, Darren, there are a lot of things now like Pastora, Plateau, Outrider, even Tenacity. That's basically just Callisto that's labeled, HPPD, that's labeled for pastures. In lawns, there's Dimension, uh, there's Pendimethylin, that's Prowl. Now, granted, that's a pre-emerge product, but still. I mean, there are a lot of products that will actually control grass in a grass, but you have to be careful about what type of grass your field is. That's for sure. So you have to know what kind of grass you've got. And if you've got a perennial grass and you're trying to take out an annual grass, that's a whole lot easier than trying to kill another perennial grass. That's quite a bit more difficult. Yeah, if let's say it was an annual grass and you were trying to kill an annual grass field. Now, I don't know when this would ever come up, but, uh, well, let's put it this way. Let's say you've got a perennial grass in a perennial grass field. If that perennial grass was standing way taller, the one you wanted to kill, if it was standing way taller than the other grasses, you could potentially wick it. So, in other words, that's like a rope that's uh, that's got roundup on it, and then you go hit that, um, you basically rub over the top of those plants, not hitting the good plants, just hitting those tall plants that you're trying to wipe out. So that would certainly be another way that you could do it. But yeah, it is nice now to have some of these options to control grass in grass. But like I say, it's, uh, well, <laughs> it's much harder to do that than it is killing broadleaves in a grass crop. And again, let me just run through those products again. Pastora, Plateau, Outrider, uh, those are all ALS herbicides, by the way. Then there is the HPPD product that's very similar. Well, it's the same active ingredient as Callisto in corn called Tenacity. In lawns, you could use Dimension and Pendimethylin. That's Pendimethylin's the same thing as Prowl. All right, next one comes from Dwayne. He says, I'm not a farmer, but I watch a show just about every week. I am a homeowner, and I'm having problems with yellow wood sorrel in my lawn. It keeps getting worse every year. The weed is extremely bad around my trees. I have found chemicals to kill the weed, but they also kill the trees. I don't want to kill my trees, so I was wondering if you have any suggestions on how to stop yellow wood sorrel. Darren, what do you think? Well, a couple things. Uh, and we can talk about herbicides because I agree with him. Herbicides are effective. 
uh, at, at killing the weed. But the big thing is you're struggling with getting grass thick and healthy around those trees, probably because they're getting some shade. So I would work on whatever it takes to get a good thick lawn growing there. Fertility would be important. Uh, and you're probably going to have to do some seeding out there this fall to try to, to get a really good take going into next year. You may have to do a little trimming on those trees and trim up some of the lower branches to allow a little more sunlight to, to feed that grass that's underneath them. That would be the best way you could get it under control. Okay, but when we talk about herbicide, 2,4-D actually does pretty well. If you were to get your hands on some of the new 2,4-D Freelex, we don't see near the drifter volatility out of that. Otherwise, it's a late fall or early spring application of 2,4-D, and that will probably do it, don't you think, Darren? Absolutely. Okay. Next one comes from Jerry. He says, I bale horse hay for a, a lady in central Indiana. Now, the alfalfa in the field has been gone for a couple years. Would it be worth it to frost seed alfalfa back into this field to rejuvenate it, or is this just throwing money at a bad situation? She would rather not lose the last cutting of orchard grass this season. So uh, by cutting, oh, and also he says here, by getting a soil sample, would it be better to fertilize in the fall or the spring? So let's first answer the easy question. Fertility, sooner the better. So as soon as you get samples and as soon as you need realize you need fertility, get it out there because when we start talking about hay, that's growing all the time. So the sooner you get fertility, the sooner you're going to have more tonnage. In terms of throwing alfalfa back out into this field, if there's orchard grass out there now, it's going to be real tough to get that alfalfa established and uh, frost seeding alfalfa. Darren, what do you think? I don't think that's a very good idea at all. Never had it work. Nope. I've never had that work. Nope. So honestly, our suggestion is going to be, I realize you don't want to lose that or that last cutting of orchard grass, but you got to, you got to make the call. Do you want just orchard grass or do you want some kind of mix? Now, the other thing that I always tell people is you are going to be way ahead tonnage wise to raise alfalfa on one part of the field and orchard grass on the other part of the field. That way you can maximize the fertility, the weed control, insects, everything else. And you can manage those crops separately and you'll end up with more total tonnage. So if it was me, I would just take a part of that orchard grass field. I would tear that up this fall. So obviously you're not losing your whole last cutting of orchard grass. Then you seed that to alfalfa and you go from there. So that's, uh, in my opinion, the best way to go. All right, uh, once again, we are going to talk about aerial seeding cover crops today here on Ag PhD Radio. There's been a lot of interest in cover crops over the last few years, but a lot of people are wondering, how do I get that applied? How do I get that seeded? Is aerial an option? We'll talk about that right after this. As your corn crop grows and the ear begins to form, potassium is at a high demand, almost as high as nitrogen. The same is true for soybeans with similar high demands of potassium during pod fill. Don't fall behind and ensure your crop is getting its potassium with Catalyst. Catalyst by Actigrow has been shown to be the best at entering the leaf when compared to other leading potassium products. Visit k-supercharged.com for more information. You got in the field. Well done. That wasn't an easy task this year. 
Now give your bean crop everything it needs to get the job done this season. Adding agro-liquid fertilizer to post-emerge spraying passes provides your soybeans with the nutrients needed when the plant reaches the reproductive stage. Foliar-feeding soybeans can provide the in-season edge you need to economically and efficiently boost yield potential. We can help you develop a successful nutrition program for your soybeans. To learn more, visit agroliquid.com. Clean fields and higher yields start with a strong battle plan. For soybean growers, there's no stronger ally than Sonic Herbicide. When applied pre-emerge, Sonic has proven to defeat yield robbers like water hemp, mare's tail, and giant ragweed. With long-lasting residual control, it keeps fighting to defend your field from invaders. Visit battleweeds.com to plan your attack against weeds. Always read and follow label directions. Sir, yes, sir! Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty broadcasting from the Morton studio. Today we're talking about aerial seeding cover crops and first on the show we've got uh, Jamie Scott and he is with Scott's Cover Crop out in Indiana. Hey Jamie how are you today? Pretty good how are you? Excellent. So tell us just a little bit about what what you do out there in terms of aerial seeding cover crops. How popular is it? Uh, What kind of cover crops are you usually seeding? Uh, When are you seeding them? Just give me some general information about what you do. Yeah, so we're normally flying on about 50,000, 60,000 acres a year. Um, kind of depends on the year. Uh, one like this, late planted, uh, pretty popular. Um, probably going to be one of the main ways everyone gets cover crops on because uh, by the time we get harvest done, just be out of days to do much else. Um, we're using a little bit of everything. Uh, we use a lot of annual ryegrass, uh, but we're doing a lot of mixes. Uh, oats, radish, uh, cereal rye, some barley, triticales, just a lot of different things uh, in there. Um, and and basically, guys, just hard to get harvest done in that, so it kind of uh, helps with their workload. So. so when do you find the best timing is to get these applied? Yeah, so I'd say if someone's going to start out, I think a few things to help them out with. Um, I always hear, uh, you know, you got to wait to a certain stage of the crop. Yep. I, I think that's something we ran into early on that we uh, didn't realize residual chemicals was the hang-up. And so, <laughs> yep. um, you know, we, we were judging by stage of crop. And so I look at it and say we need to, you know, read that label and kind of look at does it do with rainfall or pH or, you know, what that chemical makeup is. And and then know when we put it on. Um, I always say the only problem by going too early is it's too good unless you have this residual chemical issue. Um, And uh, we also see where liberty uh, can be a problem. Um, Guys are of the assumption it's kind of here today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, we see that's not the case. It it has a little bit of a a window there that we need to be careful with even. So So you mentioned mixes rather than just rye. 
Uh, what determines whether a guy is going to do a mix? Does he usually just say, hey, I've got to have a mix. i got to have some radishes and turnips and all this other stuff. Or is it something you suggest in certain cases? I, I think it depends. I think two ways. One, uh, diversity and rotation are really key in, in soil health and what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. It, it can break up some disease cycles and pest cycles and things. Um, I also think out here we have EQIP and some NRCS programs that actually lead them to needing a, a second species or third in there. Right. Um, but hopefully it's the first one, you know, where they're focused on soil health and, and uh, benefits, uh, you know, out of rapeseed or radishes or, or something like that. Sure. So a lot of people kind of question, all right, if I'm just going to fly this seed on, that means the seed's laying on the soil surface. How is it going to grow? How much moisture do you have to have afterwards before you find you get good germination? Well, you know, it kind of depends on the size of the seed. So the smaller it is, the less moisture we have to have. Um, I I think there's two ways to look at that. We either have to have uh, kind of moist soil going into it or a rain afterwards yeah um i also hear where guys say oh i want a half inch of rain after that it, it's going to be hard to schedule an airplane or, <laughs> or any of those on top of the ground seating methods yep. because of that um so i look at it and say if the ground is moist go ahead and get it on dewy mornings and stuff are going to germinate those smaller seats and, and we're going to be fine it doesn't necessarily need a rain right after it The other concern that a lot of people have had is if they don't get harvest done early enough, and let's say there continues to be some kind of canopy out there, you don't get sunlight, and then that ends up really damaging that cover crop, or it just doesn't, it it might start to die off. So is there a certain point where you say, hey, it's got to at least be this far along, or a certain date on the calendar you shoot for where you say, all right, we got to wait till at least this date, otherwise you're not going to be successful? I'm going to say that overall, um, the guys that harvest in a timely fashion are more successful with cover crops. It's just, you know, nice to get it sunlight at some point in time. I have seen guys that don't harvest corn until the next spring, um, and it's some of the best cover crops I've ever seen. So I look at it and say that it's not as much getting sunlight down to it. I think we can get a, a lot in there. What I see as a problem is the residue uh, being spread on top of that growing cover crop. And so if we have a a high-yielding corn environment, sometimes we tend to snuff out that cover crop if um, from the time we seeded it until the time we harvested enough days to get it up and going. Um, Same with beans. A lot of times we see a pattern to the field that has to do more with the combine and how it spreads residue than maybe an airplane or a high boy or that on top of the ground seeding method. And it's more of a snuffing it out type uh, deal than, than maybe getting sunlight to it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Good point. Okay. You were talking about you have been flying on 50,000, 60,000 acres. And this year, obviously, with Prevent Plant and all the issues, there's probably going to be more. But without that, let's say that all the acres had been planted. Are you seeing more of a trend to putting cover crops out there in your region? We are. You know, it's to the point where uh, the cover crop industry is struggling to keep up. Uh, There's more acres every year, and and that's a good thing. Um, You know, and so, yes, I think the trend is up. Um, A year like this, it kind of taxes the system because it's maybe up more than anyone wanted uh, or anticipated for seed supply and issues like that. 
So any other big challenges that you've had in, in getting this going or any big challenges the farmers have had? You mentioned the herbicide carryovers or anything else like that? Um, that's one of the big things I see. You know, the other big thing I see is that when people uh, evaluate the cost of that aerial application or a high boy even, um, I've spoken a lot of states where, where someone puts a drill cost at it. I, I think we have to be realistic. And, uh, you know, if you use Iowa State, Purdue, you know, different universities' numbers as far as a drill, man hours and things, that actually the airplane's a cheap uh, method to put the cover crops on. Um, the other thing is we don't have those residual chemical issues. You know, we get a month, month and a half, maybe two months head start uh, that gain us benefits at the end of the day, uh, root growth and, and other things that uh, I think if we figure it correctly, um, more guys would uh, fly on with an airplane or a high boy that broadcast on top of the ground uh, pre-harvest method. Well, I think one of the biggest things is just the amount of time the farmer has. When you when you stop and think about it, planters have gotten lots bigger. Uh, sprayers have gotten lots bigger. So we can plant way more acres in a day. We can spray way more acres in a day. So those are the two big jobs in the spring. Well, in the fall, in terms of harvest, yep, we might have bigger combines, but you know what? We got lots and lots and lots more bushels than we used to have. So I find that we are ridiculously strapped for time in the fall. So that's probably the biggest thing I see is at least it gets done. Because a lot of times when I talk to guys about cover crops, they go, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll try to get to it. And then they don't get to it. And there you sit and you went another year without a cover crop. That, that's right. And that's kind of the wild card this year. Uh, I was talking to some companies today on seed and everyone's kind of wondering because there will be basically no after harvest trilling and stuff as to what our final demands are. And and again, it's that workload. We're going to do everything we can to get this crop out of the field and just not worry about maybe a cover crop at that time. So, All right, uh, Jamie, I got about 30 seconds left. Any last comments you have for us? You know, the only thing I can tell everyone, give it a try. Um, and, and if it doesn't work the first year, don't give up. Um, I've talked to a lot of aerial applicators and, and, you know, say, listen, if you flew on 5,000 acres this year, how many of that is in the 10,000 next year? Make sure it's someone that can help service it and troubleshoot to know if it's a chemical pattern issues, maybe the wrong uh, cover crop, things like that to help them out. All right, great stuff. Again, we've been talking to Jamie Scott with Scott's Cover Crop. He is out in Indiana. Jamie, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Yeah, there's a lot to it when it comes to cover crops, and um, I, I guess the big thing that we want you to do, just like Jamie said, is start and see what you run into. You're going to figure out over time, oh, I like this blend different. I like this timing different. I, I maybe want to terminate it early. Maybe I want to let it grow into the spring. you got to try it on a small scale before you take on the whole farm. Well, stay tuned. We'll continue talking about seeding cover crops right after this. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic fungicides from Atticus LLC. Fungal diseases can be devastating, but Acadia, Slant, and Talaris 4.5F from Atticus deliver lasting, broad-spectrum fungi control so your soybeans, sugar beets, and dry beans can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. 
build with the best. When you choose Morton Buildings for your next farm storage building, you'll experience the Morton Advantage at every step, starting before the walls even go up. Since the value of our buildings is in its ability to protect what you have stored inside, we ensure that every component is researched and tested to withstand the elements in all weather conditions. And we back it up with the strongest warranty in the business. Looks better, built stronger, lasts longer. Learn more at mortonbuildings.com. Foliar sprays are only effective if you can get applied product into the plant. Nutex EDA is a micronutrient-based additive that delivers the foliar absorption boost you've been looking for. Nutex EDA supports rapid penetration and translocation of both nutrients and systemic crop protection within plants. Research trials have shown a 10 to 20% increase in nutrient absorption and higher tissue levels for a longer period, resulting in higher yields. Use Nutex EDA this season with all your foliar applications. Using NSERV Nitrogen Stabilizer with Fall Fertilizer Applications keeps nitrogen available into the spring for maximum crop growth. Field trials in Iowa show NSERV delivered an average revenue increase of $22.96 per acre, and NSERV is the only recognized nitrogen stabilizer product in the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy because it reduces nitrate leaching. That's max profit in an environmentally sustainable way. Calculate your field's profit potential at nitrogenmaximizers.com. You got in the field. Well done. That wasn't an easy task this year. Now give your bean crop everything it needs to get the job done this season. Adding agro-liquid fertilizer to post-emerge spraying passes provides your soybeans with the nutrients needed when the plant reaches the reproductive stage. Foliar-feeding soybeans can provide the end-season edge you need to economically and efficiently boost yield potential. We can help you develop a successful nutrition program for your soybeans. To learn more, visit agroliquid.com. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here broadcasting from the Morton studio today. So today on the show we're talking a little about aerial seeding cover crops. And next on we've got Damon Reby. He is with Reby Spraying Service out in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Damon, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. All right, so tell us a little bit about aerial seeding of these cover crops out in your area. What what uh, what type of seed are you usually putting out for guys? Yeah, we're primarily putting out cereal rye. Um, we do a little bit of winter wheat. Uh, we do some spring barley. Uh, a little bit of uh, occasionally a little bit of annual ryegrass, but uh, the bulk of what we're doing is is. Uh, uh, winter rye or cereal rye. So it seems to me like the cover crop thing has really taken off in the last five years. Is this something you've been doing for a long time, or is this just fairly recent where you've gotten into this? Uh, where we've gotten the we started in the cover cropping in 2010. Okay. Um, prior to that, uh, probably a lot of listeners remember uh, late 80s and early 90s. We did a fair amount of interseeding of winter wheat as a actual 
uh, commodity crop into uh, soybeans. That was yep. uh, somewhat of a regular farm practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, we've been doing a lot of uh, dry material application in the form of uh, uh, fertilizers for for decades. Sure. Now, in the state of Wisconsin, you're kind of like we are here in South Dakota. It's really cold. <laughs> so the sure. biggest challenge I've had with getting cover crops out there has just been it gets very late sometimes. And this year, I'm really worried about it because of all the late planting. But uh, what do you usually like to do for timing? When are you seeding these cover crops into, I assume it's mostly corn in your area, right? Yeah, mostly corn, uh, silage corn, and soybeans. Sure. Um, so in the case of the soybeans, we like to time it to where the soybeans, uh, about 50% of the leaves have turned. Yep. Uh, and the timing there is just to um, get the seed down underneath the canopy and, uh, you know, the next rainfall, that seed will germinate. That'll begin to grow. And eventually that plant's going to need access to sunlight and, uh, you know, by going at that time, those leaves have those soybean leaves have finished senescing and they've fallen off. Yeah, and uh, we've opened up that canopy. So that's kind of the general recommendation we make on soybeans. Grain corn, we want the um, corn senesced up to the ear. Uh, same concept. Uh, after that cover crop has germinated and starts growing, eventually it's going to need access to sunlight. Uh, by delaying that application a little bit. Uh, that provides us with an opportunity for that sunlight then to penetrate uh, as the rest of the corn plant um, senesces. In the case of silage corn, we like to go uh, no more than about two weeks prior to harvest. Obviously, silage isn't going to be senescing, and so uh, we just want that that cover crop to have access to sunlight within about two weeks after germination. So you got to be about right there on this silage corn and getting some of those cover crops seeded, aren't you? Well, we're late here. So uh, we're, we're, our seasons, like a lot of places in the Midwest, we're late. Uh, typically, we get started about the very end of August in sure. silage corn. Yep. This year looks like it's going to be uh, towards the end of the first week in September okay. uh, due to the late planting, which has resulted in a late harvest. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have to wait, wait, cool our jets for a bit. So I know in the soybeans you said next rainfall and these things germinate. Do you find that in your geography you're humid enough, the soil's usually wet enough that it doesn't take a whole lot of rainfall and the cover crops get started? Uh, yeah, you know, there's a, I think I all call it a misconception that, um, in order to get a broadcast stand established, it requires a, a lot of rainfall. And I haven't found that to be the case. Um, we, we certainly have to have some type of a rain event to get it germinated. I have not experienced, uh, uh, dew or humidity, uh, to be enough to get the cover crop started, Yep. but, uh, uh, when we track back over the years that we've been doing this, uh, we've had extremely successful stands on years that were uh, well below average rainfall in September and October. Hmm. Well, that's good. Uh, droughts obviously don't work. Uh, I can tell you 2012, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have yeah. much success. Yep, yep. No, I, I can believe that. Well, again, we've been talking to Damon Reby with Reby Spring Service out in Wisconsin. Damon, thanks for the time today. Really appreciated having you on the show. Yeah, take care. You bet. You too.
All right, next we got our friend Dan Perkins. He's the cover crop guy uh, with uh, Perkins Good Earth Farm, and he is a uh, uh, consultant also out in the state of Indiana. Dan, how you doing today? Hey, doing pretty good, Brian. It's uh, weird to hear you by yourself. <laughs> well, you know, in the summertime, Darren and I end up splitting this up a little bit because we like to get out in the countryside. Darren is out looking at some crops with some high-yield farmers today and just seeing what right. he can learn. And, you know, I, I, I'm i just staying uh, here in the studio, seeing what I can learn today. Uh, so tell me a little That's bit right. about cover crops and what you've kind of seen in your area, especially related to aerial seeding. Sure. So aerial seeding in our area um, can work really well. And I would agree with the person who was just on, you know, it's, it doesn't take a ton of rainfall after to get a good seeding, um, but certainly it takes a little bit. Um, yeah. And I would... I would beg to differ with him a little bit in our region. We like to go, um, you know, a little bit earlier even so that we can guarantee that there's 100% humidity underneath that corn. Uh, we're hotter than he is up in Wisconsin, so we right. tend to dry down right. really fast. So we can we can stretch that window a little bit and go a little earlier, and we end up with better stands that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, yeah. different areas are going to have different weather conditions, and I, I totally get that, Indiana. Yeah, you're a lot hotter, and it, your season's also a little bit different, too. So, uh, what, Right, exactly. And and even northwest Indiana, you know, we're, we're right below the lake. Yep. But you go further east, they get a lot of lake effect. So they get four or five more inches of rain mm-hmm. than we do, um, and that mostly falls in the fall. So... That that's uh, and they have far more success, I guess, with aerial feeding than we tend to. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting, just kind of observation I've seen over the years. Are you finding so? There's a tremendous amount of rye, cereal rye, or annual rye thrown out there. Are you finding more guys are going just to that, or are more guys going to a diversified mix? I I think in the case of aerial seeding, guys tend to keep it pretty simple: cereal rye, oats yeah. and radish, annual rye grass. Um, but because we're learning how powerful diversity is in for soil health and for improving um, future the next crop's crop yield, you know, anytime we can add another species, I think we we just benefit. Um, and so guys are you know trying things out as the budget allows, and you know probably ra- rapeseed or kale is the the biggest thing most often added. Because it's relatively inexpensive and works well in aerial seeding. Sure. So is there anything, let's say in the last couple of years, that you've learned that's been new or different where you said, oh, okay, well, I, I used to do it this way, now I'm doing it this other way with cover crops. Anything changed for you and your recommendations? Um, I think, you know, with soybeans, we generally like to go when they just turn that pale green, so before they're even yellowing. Sure. Um, again, that's going to be region specific. We realize we can yeah. get better stands that way. Um, I think this prospect of seeding at V3, V4 corn, um, is especially for areas north of us, north of I-70, is going to be a real game changer once we figure out the, the kinks. Um, I think that's, that's going to be the new aerial seeding. Uh, I think, in the next coming years. Yeah, I worry a lot about that, uh, just that the cover crop might get up and then there's no sunlight there and then it might die off. Are you concerned about that? No, actually, we've had 
uh, replicated yield plots for the last five years um, in our region and across southern Minnesota. And generally, the it's a cool season cover crop that's getting established, you know, that you seed in early June. Um, it goes dormant because of the heat and shade. And then, you know, your seeding is essentially done in the fall already. Yeah. Um, yep. So, so yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a really cool concept. Yeah. We'll have to see if that, that uh, pans out. Well, again, we've been talking to Dan Perkins, the cover crop guy out in Indiana. Dan, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Your independent spirit is more rewarding than ever before. Unlike incentive programs that require growers to purchase a particular seed brand or to bundle certain products, the FMC Freedom Pass program rewards you for making the best choices for your fields. You decide what's best for your operation, from pre-plant to harvest. Your retailer and FMC take care of the rest. It's really that simple. The exclusive agronomic rewards, performance assurances, application innovations, and product financing of the FMC Freedom Pass program make it easier to protect your crops and cash flow. That's what we mean when we say we give you more freedom in the field. You'll experience more control and confidence, too. Generics and imitators can't promise that. Visit your authorized FMC retailer or fmcfreedompass.com to calculate your potential financial incentive and learn more. How do you know when to run your grain bin fans? There's an app for that. With the Steps GMS app, you can manually turn your fans on and off from your smartphone. You can also configure the Steps GMS app to automatically turn fans on when the humidity or temperature is ideal to keep your grain in top quality condition. Save yourself some time and take the guesswork out of managing your stored grain with the Steps GMS app. Contact us at stepsgms.com for more information. Imagine the perfect flow of grain from the field to the bin. Imagine a single rotor that ensures both quality and productivity. An advanced system that optimizes harvest settings on the go. You don't have to imagine. With features like AFS Harvest Command, an axial flow combine from Case IH always delivers the perfect flow for your operation. Find out how. Talk to your Case IH dealer today. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and Buy 2 Save 3 are trademarks owned by AMVAC Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, joined now by my brother Darren. We are broadcasting today from the Morton studio. 
So, Darren, we've been talking about aerial seeding of cover crops. Did you have any last comments for us on that before we get back to the Ag PhD mailbag? Well, not really, Brian. You know, it's something that for most growers they haven't done. And with anything that's a new practice, we always suggest starting slow and work with one field or part of a field. Leave check strips so you know what kind of difference you saw. And then don't base everything you do off one year and one trial. If something worked great, that's fine. You can do a few more acres, but make sure it's worked a couple of times first before you start doing it on a big chunk of your farm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There was a deal that came up today. A farmer used a new product, and he used it on the entire farm, and it didn't work. And I go, what was he doing using it on the whole farm? And I talked to his, his agronomist. He goes, well, I told him not to do that, but he did it anyway. <laughs> I go, oh, my goodness. Try stuff on a small scale. That, that way you know. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, 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 I agree. There are a lot of things that we learn. And you might think, oh, I, 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 I know it all. It's not that difficult. Cover crops, yep, everybody's doing it. I don't care. Anything you haven't done before, you should start small. Yeah, it might work for somebody else, but it might not work with your practices, your rotation, your equipment. Your herbicides. So make sure you do yep. it small. And then, and then also leave check strips always with anything new that you're trying. That way you know if it works or if it doesn't. Yep, Absolutely. All right, let's get back to the Ag PhD mailbag. Uh, next question here comes from Deb. She says, do you schedule a year out on your field day, or do you wait and see how far along the crops are to decide when to schedule? I just want to make sure we have a hotel close to the show if we attend next year. All right, so Deb, we, for our Ag PhD field day, always have it the last Thursday of July. And whether the year is ahead or behind, we make things look the way we want them to look at the field day. We do a lot of different planting dates there. So we always have a wide variance. We have small crop to big crop just to show. And so, yeah, that, that date is always set. Again, last Thursday in July. Next year, um, the last Thursday in July actually falls pretty late. I think, let's see, I'm just looking it up just to make sure. Yeah, it's July 30th next year. So Thursday, July 30th is the Ag PhD field day. All right, next one is from Jesse. He says, I worked for a, oh, and by the way, uh, Jesse's commenting on we had recently done a, uh, a show, an Ag PhD TV show, and we talked a little about water's effect on roads. Anyway, Jesse says, I worked for a civil engineering company and tested soil, aggregate, and concrete or asphalt and road construction. Poor drainage was the culprit in most of the potholes that show up on streets and highways. So basically, uh, Jesse here is agreeing with exactly what we talked about on the show. Anyway, he says, when water pools under the road, it softens the soil base and then the road sinks. Fat clay tends to hold water and is difficult to, to compact for construction. It may surprise people that... Uh, tilling in fly at tilling in fly ash in fat clay can make it hard and suitable for construction over it. So the reason why we talked about that on the show is we get a, obviously a tremendous amount of questions about drain tile, especially in a year like this. And the thing we always try to point out is there are such tremendous benefits to almost everybody when tile is put in the ground. And not, not the least of which are taxpayers 
everybody pays tax, right? Well, you where does a lot of our tax money go? It goes to roads. And if we can just stop the water from destroying our roads, then we don't have to spend nearly as much money on roads. So that's why when new interstate highways are built, uh, quite commonly, we're seeing tile lines put on both sides of the highway. So the, the state or whoever's doing the construction can tell the water where it's going to go rather than letting the water go just on its own. Darren, do you have any other comment on that in terms of uh, tile and water with roads? No, there's certainly been a lot of problems this year. And if you're seeing an issue in your area, just investigate. If there's a road problem, investigate what's going on. Look at what area the land is is higher and which area is lower. And if there's water that that is trying to get underneath that road, then, then you, you have your answer. But here's the challenge, Brian, is most people look at water as an above-ground thing, and they don't yeah. realize the river of water that's moving below ground. Yep, excellent point. All right, Darren, you're going to love this next one. It comes from Joe out in Illinois. He says, I have attached some soil tests for you, and based on these tests, my co-op uh, applied variable rate lime and, and variable rate fertilizer like potash, and MEZ. So uh, the MEZ is phosphorus, sulfur, and zinc. Anyway, uh, he says, at my request, they didn't suggest it, after listening to your show, we switched from DAP to MEZ to get some more sulfur out in the fields. Well, I asked my, my co-op to plan on soil sampling again this fall, and I requested one and a quarter acre grids so I could get more knowledge, more information about what I'm doing, and I'm sure we'll do fine with the NP and K. But when I asked the co-op about micronutrients, I got a funny look like they don't do do it much. Is this common with co-ops? And then he's got a few other questions here. Uh, I, look, I'm not going to speak for all co-ops or anything else, but I will say this, that a lot of people, a lot of agronomists, a lot of farmers still look at NPK, don't talk much about micronutrients. Now, if you don't have the NPK taken care of, then the micronutrient might not make a whole lot of difference. But I know yesterday, both Darren and I were meeting with a bunch of high-yield farmers, and they're super focused on micronutrients because they have done a really good job of NP and K over the years. So is it a step? Yes. Is it the first step? No. All right, next one. Uh, the co-op guy said micronutrient tests are not reliable from test to test. That's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, next one, uh, he says, I listened to your show, and it seems most farmers that listen practice what you guys teach. However, in talking with guys at our co-op and other farmers, I don't think the general farming community knows much more than NP and K. Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, Darren, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I totally agree that that's what's commonly talked about is NP and K, but here's one of the things that I think uh, Joe needs to look at. Who's paying for the soil test? If he's paying for the test, then they'll do whatever he says. But if the co-op says, look, out of the goodness of our hearts, we're going to pay for those tests for you, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to buy you a steak or are they going to buy you a hamburger? I don't think they're buying you the steak with all the complete analysis because it costs money. It's, it's going to cost them 25 bucks a sample rather than spending 10. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to, but yes, it could. And it's funny because his next thing here is, do you have any recommendations for pushing the co-op to help me get micronutrients supplied? That's real easy. You just tell them you're doing it and that's the way it is. And if you don't do it, I'm going to have somebody else do it. 
So absolutely, it can be done. He also asks, are there granular options that uh, they can spread? There sure are. Um, he says, too, I do have a sprayer. I can spray liquid. Yep, you can. He goes, I've heard of agri-liquid. Are there others? Yes, there certainly are. We've had good luck with agri-liquid. But I will tell you this. When you start talking about broadcasting, we're not real big believers in broadcasting a whole bunch of liquid products. You'll get more bang for the buck if you use those like in furrow, in a strip till, in a two-by-two, something like that. Uh, so broadcast, a lot of times we're talking dry, and that's to fix the whole soil. And that's a good idea, like when you're liming, for example, because you want to fix everything and make your overall soil better for your soil microbes and all that. Anyway, with his, his uh, soil tests here, he just asked if I would comment on these quick, and I would say there's a lot of variance. I'm seeing soil pHs down into the fives, a lot of fives, and then I'm seeing some soil pH uh, up into the sevens. Well, you know, this is the reason why we like grid sampling or zone sampling, because those areas shouldn't be treated the same. Uh, here's one, Darren, where he's got a 6% base saturation K. That's awesome. But then on one of the very next sheets, I look and he's got 1.9% base saturation K. So should he put a whole slug of potash where he's got 6% base saturation K? Probably not. But where he's got 1.9%, I can tell you right now, that's a yield limiting factor and that needs to get fixed. So yes, I would like to see more on your tests like manganese and iron. I didn't see any any figures there. And uh, in many cases, your boron's low, zinc's low, got a few other things to fix. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your questions after this. The last thing you want after harvesting your grain is to spoil it before it goes to market. The Grain Temp Guard from Farm Shop MFG is a low-cost bin monitoring solution that tracks temperature and humidity and alerts you when conditions exceed safe thresholds. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Avoid dry run failures with the new Hypro Force Field Pump. Providing the ultimate protection, this wet seal pump will save you on costly in-season downtime to keep your sprayer running. Now all you have to worry about is the weather. Hypro, helping you spray better. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agrist specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost-profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at GrainPhD.com. No one has to explain stress to a farmer. That's like explaining wind shear to a pilot. Now Mother Nature stresses corn the way markets, bankers, and politics can stress you. But there's a proven way to reduce stress. With Headline Amp Fungicide, you'll see the difference. It decreases stress from disease, drought, hail, and heat, so your corn can focus on what matters most, better yields. Talk to your local rep about Headline Amp Fungicide and BASF Plant Health. Always read and follow label directions. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System. The system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. 
featuring Extendamax herbicide with VaporGrip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. We plant corn in Iowa, spray soybeans in Illinois. We pull calves in Kansas, farrow hogs in Minnesota. We raise rice in Arkansas, rye in Canada, and wheat everywhere in between. We farm millions of acres across North America and build every piece of Case IH equipment. Built by farmers, for farmers. Case IH. Rethink productivity. Jumping right back into the Ag PhD mailbag. Next question comes from Kevin in Iowa. He says we have the ability to obtain a large amount of compost locally. I've attached a copy of the compost lab test as well as my most recent soil test. We're aware that the compost test is from a couple years ago, so we will get new tests before we actually get this product. But from the way it looks, we'd get 34, for every ton of compost, we'd get 34 pounds of N, 38 pounds of P2O5, so phosphate, uh, 8 pounds of K2O potassium, and that is applied on a wet or as received basis as well as we'd get some other macro and micronutrients. So our thoughts are to spread this ahead of the corn crop in the fall and chisel plow it in. Our ultimate goal is to increase the phosphorus levels in the soil as well as increase organic matter. Is there anything in the attached lab test that you would see as a worry if we were to apply this compost? And what's the maximum rate you would suggest to apply at one time as well as how often would you apply it? Once every two years, four years, etc.? What would you suspect the percent availability of the nutrients would be the first year? Uh, we really appreciate your information you share through your radio and television programs, as well as your seminars and field days. So first of all, Kevin, no, there's nothing alarming that I see in your compost test. Uh, one of the biggest things that we're looking for when you ask the question of how much can I put on there? I don't care if we're talking about manure or compost. My number one concern is how much salt and sodium do we have? I don't want to have anything that's going to end up hurting my ground in the short term or obviously long term. And one thing too that he did a good job of here, Darren, in testing, since uh, I know you can't see these tests or like I can, he has some of the different metals in there, some of the heavy metals that are EPA regulated. So for example, chromium, cadmium, uh, lead, even molybdenum, nickel, selenium. I mean, you have to be careful in what you're doing with these things. So as long as you're not exceeding the EPA limits, uh, the EPA, by the way, has limits on all heavy metals and what you can put on per year and what in total you can have in the soil. So as long as you are paying attention to that 
and you don't have issues with salt and sodium, like I said, I don't have a real big problem if you want to put put a bunch of compost on. The thing with compost and the big difference between that and manure, compost is going to be a very slow release. Manure is going to be a much faster release. So manure, yes, it still is going to drag out over time, but not to the degree compost is. Compost is just taking a step further than manure. It is much more to the organic matter side. So you're looking at super long release with that. Any comments on that quick, Darren? No, I just look at what is your limiting factor. And it might be one of those heavy metals that is going to limit how much you can put on. But I would say this, just like uh, what we had talked about earlier in the show, try it on a small scale first. Maybe do one field or maybe do half a field, something like that, to get started. Or you do a half of a couple different fields. Maybe if you're in a corn-soybean rotation, you do some in front of corn, some in front of soybeans, and then you learn this year. If you like it, then you go ahead and use more next year and so on. The other thing is, whether it's compost or manure, I'm always leery of using that as your total fertility solution. Exactly. You're just not going to get a super consistent product. Now, you're going to be more consistent probably than you are with manure, but still, I really like having commercial fertilizer as part of the program just to take out some of that variability out through your field. Okay, so he sent his soil test here, and just a couple of quick comments on this. There's a lot of variability here. I've got, just in a few samples, I've got 5 pH all the way up to 7.9. So we got to be a little careful with that. Where I'm going with this is you're going to need lime in some areas. You're going to need some elemental sulfur in some areas, maybe some improved drainage in other areas. But there's nowhere here where you've got, like, excessive sodium or excessive salt or anything where I would say, ooh, stay away from manure or compost. The other thing is he talked about building up his phosphorus levels. I'm glad that he said he's going to work that in. Now, what a lot of guys do, since they don't want to do tillage every year, they'll put on higher rates one year and then work it in, and then they'll go to no-till, reduce-till, strip-till, something like that in the next two or three years before they go back, throw a whole bunch of manure or compost out there again, and work it in. But to Darren's point here, he's super low on copper and boron, So, and for that matter, even zinc. So if it's me, I, in addition to the compost, I might put some copper, boron, and zinc out there. Just something to consider. All right, next one is from Nate. He says he is in uh, Washington State. He's not a farmer, but he's growing some corn in his backyard, and he's got some plants that have five ears of corn on, Darren. And he's wondering, how did this happen? Why does he have five ears of corn? Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, I wonder how many plants he has and what the density of his planting. It's very, very so thin. Example, yeah, he sent he sent some pictures, and it's it looks to me like it's about one plant every foot and a half. Well, that's what's going to happen when that plant has lots of light. You're going to have lots of ears. Yes. Yeah, so normally we wouldn't see that in a field because we no. have plants, you know, every uh, six inches or so, and. Yeah, when you've got plant space closer together, they have more competition, and there's only so much light and water and nutrients for each one. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. We'll see if it's able to hold all five ears and fill them out to the tip. That would be amazing if it did. Well, it could. Yep, you're going to see more ears. Yep, and so people see that, and they go, well, maybe I should plant that thin. But the problem is when you plant really thin, you oftentimes end up with a lot less yield. So you can certainly try it, 
and you can get more ears, but all we really care about as farmers at the end of the day is how many total bushels did we produce and did we make some money. All right, next one comes from our friend Evan Darren down in Iowa, and he says, I remember in your soils clinics, you guys were talking about soil testing when it's dry and how that can throw things off. What obscures those tests or what gets thrown off by soil testing when it's dry? What do I need to look at? Now, first of all, I I don't think it's going to be dry this year, so I'm not too worried about that. But potassium could be a little bit different. And also, sometimes soil pH could be just a little bit off. But I'm really not all that concerned about that. If you've got any moisture out there, hardly at, or almost at all, not a real big concern. Are you worried about anything there, Darren? No, just those two things that you said, because a lot of the potassium in the soil is in layers trapped in between clay particles. And when we get a lot of fracturing, like what happens in dry soils when you get big cracks and and things break, uh, it exposes some of that potassium. And then when you get a little bit of moisture, enough to be able to pull soil tests and so forth, you have quite a bit of free release of K for just a short period of time. So you may have an excessively high reading of K. All right. Next one is from Ron. He says he's in western Montana, and he's wondering what herbicides he could use to get rid of sedges and nutgrass in pasture. Here's the thing, Ron. The the sedge or nutgrass, it is uh, not a grass. It is not a broadleaf, and that's the problem. There aren't a lot of things out there that do kill sedges. One of the big things that we often talk about is Poor drainage is is usually the key. So you've got to make sure you have good drainage. So you might need tile in that area. But, you know, the other thing is, is that pasture getting overgrazed? Is it getting underfertilized? Are, are you using rotational grazing? Well, you got to make sure you're keeping that grass tall and then the grass has a better chance to choke out the sedge or anything else out there. In terms of herbicide, Darren, you got any suggestions? Well, halo sulfuron, which would be the active ingredient in sedge hammer or permit, that'd be one to look at. Uh, in soybeans, we like bentazon or basagran. I don't know if that's available in a, in a grass situation in a different formulation, but those would be a couple of uh, active ingredients I like, bentazon and halo sulfuron. All right, last question of the day. This one comes from Eve who says she is an Iowa State University sustainable ag PhD student, agriculture PhD student. Uh, By the way, I hate the word sustainable in agriculture, period, because our job, I believe, as farmers and agronomists is not to sustain, it is to improve. But anyway, her question is, um, she says, I like what you guys do and I like your apps and everything, but I'd love uh, uh, to work with you more uh, or see you do more on organic things. And you know, one of the one of the things we talk about all the time is we don't really care if it's organic, not organic, whatever. We're looking for the best practices that there are out there. I I just I think it's really important to be open-minded about whatever you can use to improve yourself, improve your farm, improve your crops. And so that was why we talked a little about cover crops today. Those obviously can be used in organic. Darren, I got about 10, 15 seconds, anything you want to add to that? No, I, I, we just don't specifically cater to just one segment of the market like that. We, we're trying to, to do things that help all farmers, I guess. All right. Well, before we go, just want to say thanks to 
our sister Janelle. She was running the controls for us today and was our production staff. Thanks to everybody who called in today and everybody who wrote in with questions. And thanks to you for listening. And be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. And now stay tuned for Shark Farmer Radio. Shark Farmer Radio.